I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Marvelous. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. The pot of thunder and rock and roll. Spell your under has been broken by Chris Jericho. The People's Podcast has arrived. The remedy for boredom is here. Let's go for a ride.
right, under black and skies from Chasing the Grail back in 2010. I had to play it. I wanted to play some heavy rock and roll that's worthy of the heavy rock and roller I got on the show. A couple of them. Skid Row's Snake Sabo is here today, along with my special co-host, Fozzie guitar player Rich Ward. The three of us talk some great stories about Skid Row, their rise to fame. Sebastian Bach, talk is Jericho alumni, and when he knew it was over with Sebastian, the Skid Row guys also took Pantera out on the road before anybody really knew who Pantera was. We're going to talk about a possible Skid Row reunion with Sebastian Bach. Snake's going to give you a real honest answer. Plus, we talk about the famous Moscow Peace Festival, Skid Row. Ozzy Osbourne, Motley Crue, Scorpions, Bon Jovi, all on the same charter plane heading over to Russia. Are you kidding me? That must have been insane. Yeah. And we're going to talk all about it, plus the fine musings and color commentary from my partner in crime, Rich Ward. It's a great, great piece. Also, Two very special guests, Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff, WWE versus WCW. They're going to give us a preview of their upcoming live open forum debate all about the Monday Night Wars. They're both in the thick of things. Bruce is one of the head writers with WWE, head of creative, head of talent relations. Eric was the president of WCW in control of everything. Hear what they remember, how their stories differ, what they both wish they could have done differently during that time. It's all going to be spirited. The truth will be spilled, and it's just a taste of what's to come on January 25th in Philadelphia at Dave and Buster's on Columbus Avenue. That is the same day as the Royal Rumble, but don't worry. This show starts at 1. It'll be over by 3. You can check it out and hear all about the Monday Night Wars. Then head on over and watch the Royal Rumble at the uh, First Union Center. Or you can just stay and watch at Dave & Buster's. Lots of cool stuff going on. But before we go any further... I need to give you guys a big thank you for doing your online shopping through my Amazon links. I appreciate you taking care of your holiday shopping there this year as well. It's the easiest way to support Talk is Jericho. Just go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcast free banner at the top of the page. Eh? Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. It's the easiest way to support the show because every time you use one of my Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a couple bucks to the show to help us co- cover production costs. I got links for Amazon USA, Amazon UK, Amazon Canada. Eh? You get all kinds of cool stuff on Amazon, Skid Row Records. You know my favorite is Subhuman Race, although um, Slave to the Grind, killer, killer record as well. Plus their new records are amazing as well. United World Rebellion Chapter 1 and Rise of the Damnation Army, United World Rebellion Chapter 2, both a couple of great EPs that they just released over the last couple of years. You want to check them out. You want to hear, check out the new Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War? Or the last Fozzie record, Sin and Bones, or the one before that, Chasing the Grail, which Under Black and Skies appeared on. There's also my new book, the third New York Times bestseller I've ever written, The Best in the World at What I Have No Idea. People are saying it's the best Chris Jericho book they've ever read. How about uh, Talk is Jericho alumni Kevin Smith's new movie, Tusk, set in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, my hometown. Also set in Gimli, where my dad lives. Very, very weird, disturbing movie, and yet I can't stop thinking about it. If you want something different and you want the tremendous writing that Kevin Smith is known for, go check out Tusk. Listen, you can also get anything else you want. I bought a, a monitor there the other day, a Dell monitor for my uh, stand-up video game that stopped working. It's funny, everything kind of broke down at once. My stand-up video game, the monitor blew. Uh, the heater blew in the hot tub, which is nice. Uh, the upstairs cable went out, 
and uh, my garburator just exploded. Now, people who listen to the Kevin Smith Smodcast, episode 316, go check that out now as well. Special guest me, Chris Jericho. We talked about Canadian terms. We also had Gordy Canuck came on uh, months and months ago to talk about Canadian terms, uh, mentioning a garburator. That's known as a garbage disposal. Every time I call a plumber when it breaks down, it seems to break down every six months, I always say my garburator broke down and no one knows what I'm talking about. You can probably buy garburators also on Amazon. Listen, you can get whatever you want. And the truth about using my links, it's not going to cost you anything extra. No hidden fees or extra charges. So if you happen to be doing some online shopping, do it through my Amazon links. Help out the show in the process. You go to podcastone.com. You click on the Keep Our Podcasts Free banner at the top of the page. Then you hit the Talk is Jericho button. Bookmark it so you can get to those links in one easy click. Help us out. Come on down. All right, we got the uh, a couple dates coming up. I'm off for a whole month, which I'm loving. I'm loving having a big New Year's Eve bash tonight at Casa de Jericho. Very, very excited about that. Also excited to come back to the WWE to do select dates. Uh, these are the only ones I'm doing on the Y2J Winter Tour with the WWE. It's uh, January 10th, Montgomery, 11th, Mobile, both of those in the state of Alabama, fine state of Alabama. Uh, January 16th, St. Louis, 17th, Las Vegas, 18th, Houston. Who booked that? My gosh, what a crazy rowdy that is 23rd trenton new jersey 24th east rutherford january 31st edmonton february 1st heading back to calgary alberta canada always love going there home of my friend lance storm a future guest right here on talk is jericho uh february 7th jacksonville florida february 8th canton ohio 14th tampa 15th fort myers florida uh, February 27th, Madison Square Garden, most famous arena in the world. 28th, up to Toronto, Ontario, March 1st in Buffalo, New York. Then head straight from there to the Cinderblock World Tour. Then head straight from there to the Cinderblock Party World Tour 2015 with the Dirty Youth all the way over in the UK, Ireland, and Europe. Starts March 4th in Belfast. Then we're going to Cork and Dublin. Then hitting the rest of the UK. A lot of dates coming up, including... Nottingham on the 7th, Wolverhampton 8, Manchester 9, Glasgow, Scotland 10, London on the 11th. That's a big show at the Underground. we got the 12th in Bristol, 13th, Exeter, March 14th, Southampton, 15th, Brighton. Then we head over the pond to Paris, France, March 17th. Then we head Pratown, Switzerland, March 18th, Munich, Germany on the 19th, Mannheim on the 20th, and Bochum on the 21st to end that leg of the Cinderblock Party World Tour. Go to FozzyRock.com and check out all the dates and get all the information about vips ticket information you're not going to want to miss this show it was one of the highest rated highest reviewed shows of the year uh, when we did it with texas hippie coalition and shaman's harvest a few uh, months ago and also the same thing is going to happen when we hit europe and the uk and ireland so many great things coming up get ready to rock also if you live in the Tampa area, I want you to come to Drags to Riches. It's a fundraiser down at Hamburger Mary's in Ybor City. Wrestlers and drag queens. It's going to be a lot of fun. Christian and myself, the reunion of Vitamin C. We're going to be down at this amazing fundraiser, uh, Drag Queen Bingo. And this is a blast. Don't let the drag thing queen uh, turn you off. It's actually super fun. That's Sunday, January 4th at the infamous Hamburger Mary's in Ybor City. Charity event. Uh, to help Horses for Healing program at Quantum Leap Farm. I really believe in this. My wife really believes in this. Come on down to Hamburger Her uh, Mary's in Ybor City, 
Sunday, January 4th at 5 p.m. Come hang out with me. Come hang out with Christian. Have some fun. Uh, do a little bit of work for charity. You can donate some, some cash or just come hang out. You can win some big prizes, raffle items, 50-50 raffle. So many great things coming up with me and Christian. We'll be hoping, hosting it. Um, if you live in the Tampa area, Florida area, come on down January 4th, Sunday, 5 p.m., Hamburger Mary's. It's drags to riches. What more do you want? Going to be a lot of fun. Now, what more do you want tonight? As we go into New Year's Eve, well, the first, we've got four big guests, Skid Row, Snake Sabo, and Rich Ward of Fozzie coming up. But first, Bruce Pritchard, Eric Bischoff, get ready to debate. All right, on January 25th, 2015, for the first time ever in Philadelphia at Dave & Buster's on Columbus Avenue, it's going to be an open forum debate about the Monday Night Wars. Now, the thing that's different about this is two of the top, top, top names involved in that war will be debating each other. Eric Bischoff, Bruce Pritchard, and they're both here right now. What's going on, guys? It's all good, man. I, you, you, you stole half of my promo there, Chris. I, I was, that, that's about all I had to say. So, no. <laughs> it's going to be a yeah, short debate because I know Eric will have a lot to say. It's not the way it's going to work. Yeah, first of all, Chris, it's, it's great, to, uh, great to be on your show. Great to speak with you. It's been a long, long time. I know. I'm excited. I'm, uh, I appreciate being on your show. Uh, it, you know, it's going to be fun. The, the Monday Night Wars was clearly an era um, that shaped, I think, even what we see today in many, many ways. And it was probably the highlight of the wrestling industry, you know, for the last 20, 30 years in terms of it being really popular and, and energizing the genre. And I was fortunate to be a part of that. And, and I look forward to getting on stage and, and hearing Bruce's perspective because, as you pointed wow. out, Chris, he was on the other side of the fence, man. Well, the thing is, too, Eric, I mean, being a part of it, you, in a lot of ways you orchestrated the Monday Night Wars, being the president of WCW, being the guy in charge. I mean, uh, Vince and, and Bruce as well, because Bruce was Vince's right-hand man at the time, uh, had started Raw, and then you came in kind of uh, direct fire, direct combat, to start Nitro at the same time. So in a lot of ways, Eric, you almost started the whole quote-unquote Monday Night Wars uh, phenomenon. I mean, I guess, you know, you could certainly say that, and I'm, 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 trying, to be, uh, I'm trying to be gracious here. But, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it was something that, um, you know, I was given a mandate by, by Ted Turner, you know, make, make WCW competitive. And I just... You know, my whole life, you know, fighting and, and confronting challenges and, and tackling the, the big things or the big ideas has always just been a part of my DNA. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to start that fight. And, and a big part of it, too, though, was we were established mm -hmm. on, on Monday nights. We were established first with primetime wrestling. Then, then we, we changed the way that uh, televised wrestling was really done by – going to a live arena and broadcasting live and telling our storylines and having them develop week by week with Raw. Mm -hmm. So we were already established. So when WCW came in and went head up against us in, I believe it was 94, you know, they, they came in. No, it wasn't 94, but, but the, the, there was WCW 95. started 95 or so. 95. It's in September. And they went, when we were preempted for a dog show, they, <laughs> Monday Nitro. So you're looking for wrestling on the dial. You're you're searching around. You're looking for your Monday Night Raw, and all of a sudden you go, "Hey, wait a minute! Here's wrestling over here." It had a different look. It was in the Mall of America, and then lo and behold, not only do you see that, but you see 
an established WWF at the time star who was just on Raw last week, Lex Luger. Right, appearing on Nitro. Actually, actually, Bruce, I would I would say he was an established WCW star who moved briefly to the WWF and came back. But That's at the time, he was with WWF. He had been working with WWF, and unbeknownst to you know, only a few people, you know, his contract had, had expired. He was in negotiations to continue on. And to the average fan, to the WWF fan, who, you know, they, they, um, a lot of loyal WWF fans never even watched WCW. So when they saw Luger, they're like, oh, hey, what's this? Because Hogan was there, Savage was there. There are a lot of WWF stalwarts. Let me ask you this, Bruce. Did you have any any inkling at all that Luger was going to jump for that first Nitro? <laughs> okay, well, it's a funny story, and I'm actually going to get into it in Philadelphia. Yes, uh, yeah, we did, because there were, were contract things going back and forth, and we were doing a shoot on top of Titan Towers on that day, and it was going on during the night. So I don't even think that Vincent Company knew that Luger was on Nitro. All they knew is he didn't show up for the shoot hmm. at that point in time. Right. Okay. And I was in Hong Kong. I get a call from Pat Patterson. At, it was like, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning, Hong Kong time. And he says, Bruce, you won't believe who's on Nitro tonight. <laughs> what, is Pat turning into Jim Barnett now? <laughs> Lexi. That's my Pat. So, Eric, what did you, um, as far as is attracting Luger to be on the very first Nitro, is that something that kind of happened very quickly, or was it something you've been working on for a little while? You know, to be honest, I don't remember how long it took. I think it was only about maybe a month's worth of negotiations and discussions. And, you know, I've said this before, and I'll go into more detail in Philadelphia, but it, you know, it, it just, I wasn't really excited about it. To be honest, I didn't have a good feeling about Lax. I was really um, hesitant to bring him in, and it was Sting who, you know, finally convinced me that it was worth the risk. And uh, it, it it was just not a big priority for me. It just mm-hmm. happened to work out, and it actually kind of set the tone. It was that. But I think if moment. you ask people, that was that was the one thing they all come back to. What? You had a WWF guy on your show. Well, it really set the tone for for what you were trying to do, Eric, because it was seek and destroy, like you said, make WCW relevant, make WCW a hit. You were going in there all guns blazing to to take over that spot and become the biggest wrestling company, and in a lot of ways, the only wrestling company in, in North America at that point. Well, we and we look, we were we knew we were up against the incumbent. WWF, WWE was such a massive you know organization, and they've been around for so many years. The only way that we could get attention is to do something loud aggressive, brash, unpredictable. And the Luger thing was, you know, that was like the, the opening salvo. It was mm-hmm. something that no one expected. It was something that nobody in the industry had ever done or attempted to do anything quite like that before. And it just got people talking. Well, and that became kind of a tone of the Monday Night Wars. Like, who would jump back and forth? It seemed like on a weekly basis, someone was jumping to WCW or someone would jump back to, to the WWE. I even remember a time when Rick Rude was on Raw and oh, Nitro God. at the same time, Bruce. <laughs> what yeah, was... <laughs> don't even get me started on that one. That, that, was, that was a low point because if you can imagine us, we were having to tape. We were doing live television uh, on you... Monday night, and we would tape the next week, the next day. Yes. And we'd been in Montreal on Sunday night with the infamous Montreal screw job. Then we did TV on, on Monday, and then we did TV on Tuesday to air the following Monday. 
And Rick Rude was a part of both of those tapings. <laughs> yeah, he, he did live commentary, though, and we're sitting in, in Sanford, Connecticut. We're doing live commentary, and we have Nitro up in the control room, and all of a sudden there's Rick Rude on <laughs> On Nitro. both shows. Yeah. And See, and, and, and our show hasn't even started yet. It's a, this is the first time anybody's ever admitted public, publicly that they were actually watching Nitro while they were working on Raw. Everybody always thought it was the other way around. All of us were huddled around a control room somewhere when we were doing our, our, our live Nitro, and we were all watching what was going on on Raw so that we could somehow counter-book it or counter-program it. Nothing, well, nothing correct, near that was the truth. We did not do it when we were live in the truck. Vince forbid it. But, but Eric, I, I uh, okay. had it on when we were in the studio doing the live voiceover. I do remember, though, and it's interesting for me to talk to you guys because I had kind of one foot in both, obviously worked in both companies during the wars. But I remember at one point, I can't remember, it wasn't Janie Engel, but it was another one of the production girls that came in one day, and, and, and literally she said this, uh, our pyro went off a minute before Raw's pyro went off. Like wanting to make sure that Nitro started before Raw did, and our pyro was first, so the the people will be attracted to watch Nitro more. That happened. No, that, oh yeah, no, no, that, no. I'm not saying we didn't. We weren't aware of the show, and it was certainly on inside of the truck mm-hmm. while our show was going on. But the purpose of that really was commercial timing. We wanted to make sure when they went into break, they mean the WWF, when they went into break, we were into action. Gotcha. Because we had control. But, but you guys hours. also we had just, the you guys had the ability, Eric, to start maybe a minute, maybe two minutes prior to the hour because absolutely the network. You had the ability to go over the hour. Absolutely. At the end of the night. So you got first up on the audience. We had a tactical advantage. We took advantage of it. Just like WWF had a tactical advantage in the sense that they'd been around for so long and had built such a big fan base. We had a tactical advantage in the sense that we could, we could but we did adjust our timing in such a way that we could hook and drag the audience when the WWF couldn't. Absolutely we did it. I would do it again. So would Vince McMahon if he had the opportunity and he needed to right now. now well, you, I, you, you, I give you credit because I, I think we learned from that. I think also too, Eric. I mean, there was you had. I guess you could call it an advantage, or at least you had some sort of inside information when Bruce mentioned earlier that Raw would tape uh, on a Tuesday, so every second week Raw wasn't was was a tape show. But you they came out, gave our, they came out, they gave our you would give away the results, even telling. I remember the one time where Shivani went. You know, next up, Mick Foley's winning the world title. That ought to put a little a lot of asses in the seats. That kind of backfired on you in that case. That one backfired. <laughs> I, will, you know, I, will, I will readily admit that that is like not the smartest thing I've, I have done. But even you, know, you know, put it into context, let me come out of this with a little bit of hide. We have been giving away the outcomes uh, of Raw for some time, mm-hmm. and it was working really well. It was yeah, the little guy, people wanted the big to kill guy me. with the with a super kick, the green belt, and, uh, you know, yeah. It was a horrible kick, by the way, but it. <laughs> it, 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 that tactic had been working for a while, so when I did it, I you know I thought it would work. I mean, yeah, it didn't. <laughs> sometimes the things work, and sometimes they don't. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you, I mean, are you are you are you guys friends? Have you known each other for a long time uh, to be able to put together something like this debate? You know, it, it's uh, one I mean, of those things, Chris, that we we. We, you know, we worked together for a long time, and I, I think Eric and I are friends. We're friendly, without a doubt. But 
when we both sit down and we have a few beers and we start talking about the old days and we talk about, okay, when you did this, and he'll just look at me sideways and go, well, that's not the way it happened. You know, uh, you guys have an interesting way of revisiting history. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's how it happened on our side. Well, here's how it really happened. And it's just a different side. You have the same arguments. You have the same circumstances. But what was going on on our side was completely different than what was going on on their side. Mm -hmm. And and how we handled it was different than how they handled it. When we went to the scope with DX, and we we marched down, you know, (laughs) we went right down the back alley, you know, pounding on the door, let us in. And... You that know, was that, that was, was fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I like think everybody likes to bust my balls for doing such dirty crap. That was really sleazing, bro. How is that? that really I don't see. I don't see how that's dirty. That was fair. That was fair to me. You guys were uh, forty-five minutes away. We go on down there with the tank. Just wanted to say hello. And there's a banner. Eric, Eric, in retrospect, do you wish that you would have had like Haku and Barbarian and Dave Taylor and a bunch of those guys and just open the door and let them in? You know what? That's good. I don't know what I, I don't know what I was thinking, but again, from my perspective, I think I was in the ring when when it actually started going down, and I had somebody talking. You know, I had an IFB in my ear, and I had people tell me, you know, WWF's here. What the hell are you talking about? If I were firing cannons off at the front door, if I would have got five minutes to part, if I would have five minutes, free tickets, WCW Nitro. And my cameraman happened to see it, Tim Walbert. Says, "Look at the look at the marquee," and we shot it. And then years later, I had to uh, sit in front of a lawyer who was looking at raw footage. And you can hear Tim Walbert say, "Oh my God, look at the marquee!" Tilt his camera up and shoot it. He says, "You guys edited that." <laughs> You're getting into Probably. it, but but let but let Eric finish though, Bruce. What were you saying, Eric? In retrospect, or what, what, you don't when you, you're sitting there and you hear WWE is at the door. You're like, what? I think one of the uh, you know that's one thing I really regret. People ask me all the time, "What do you regret the most? What's the biggest mistake you ever made?" There's a, first of all, there's it was just like not enough time to talk about the mistakes I made mm-hmm. or what I should regret because I, I don't and I don't regret anything. By the way, never look backwards, only look forward. But if I could change one moment, just one moment, it would be that one where we found out that the WWF was trying to get into the arena while we were producing a live show because I would have let them in. Not that you know, I would have wanted Haku or Dave Taylor and the other guys that you know, could have done what they could have done to do it, but I, that would have been like the greatest moment in the history of you know, television and wrestling. And, and to counter that, the greatest moment for us would have been if we could have gotten the 911 call from the security guard when we went to Smyrna, Georgia, and he called the Smyrna police and said, we are being attacked with weapons. You need to get here. <laughs> <laughs> everyone short of the squat team came, guns drawn on us with our little tank and road dog with his. So I wish I, I wish that I could have obtained that 911 call, but at the time it was illegal to take those without some other kind of stuff. Well, and you know, you know, I, I, I've I've spoken to Triple H about this on on this show before. I mean, and you, you, we're talking back about the Monday Night Wars, and you, we're laughing. But at that time, it was a real war. It was a real us versus them, our team versus your team. It was not just some gimmick. A Monday Night Wars no, is very it apropos. It was a war. That's right. 
it was our livelihood. And, 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 and people looked at Eric as the Antichrist. My wife, okay, she couldn't stand the sight of Eric. And, and we went to Arizona, and, and we're sitting in a bar, and Eric and his wife come in to have a drink with us. And the first thing she does is look at Eric. She goes, I have hated you for so long. <laughs> I just decided I, I don't know how to feel about this. Because <laughs> all she saw was that character. And she knew the misery that he put us through. And, it, you know, you look, you can look back, hindsight, and it can be 2020, and you can say, okay, it was business. It was what it was. But it was personal at the time. Yes, it became personal. I agree. I agree and with you that. You fought for it. And, and had to do, you know, you had to do whatever whatever you needed to do to win. And if that was shooting yeah. off cannons, that was getting arrested at CNN Center, we were willing to do it. And, it, it, you know, it, and I, I, I will say... It wasn't a war on, on my side. I mean, it wasn't like I had a gun to my head and either I succeeded or, you know, I'd be eating a bullet. Um, I didn't have that kind of pressure on me. Of course, Ted, you know, wanted it to succeed. I was determined because WCW, you got to remember, WCW had never made a nickel from the day that Ted Turner born in 1988. Mm-hmm. It had been losing money hand over fist. They've gone, they had gone through so many different management changes, and Bill Watts came in and did just an amazingly, a, a bunch of amazingly stupid things and got all kinds of the wrong attention. And they were, I mean, Bill Shaw told me when he hired me, look, this is the last one. If we can't turn this thing around, Ted's going to pull apart. Done. And while I knew, you know, I had a contract, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was going to be out on the street, but I also knew that if we didn't make a profit, if we didn't do something to make it a viable division with internal broadcasting, there's a good chance they're going to yank it. Mm-hmm. So while you was guys pressure, did it wasn't about, the same. You guys did go about with the, with the feeling, at least, the perception of wanting to put us out of business, not just to be competitive and to, you wanted us out of business. You know, that's been said a lot over the years. And, and Chris, you may, you may recall me saying that. I do. I don't. I do. I actually, yeah. I remember it was in St. Louis. It was at a, 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 you had a team meeting in St. Louis and you said, I guarantee, or maybe not guarantee, but I have inside information that the WWE will be out of business within six months. And I remember I asked you, why do you say this? Because of their advertising, because of how how crude they are, about how how you know the the attitude era is, is so is turning people off, and we're going to blow them out of the water. So there was a point in time when at least you felt that that you had WWE on the run. No, no, no that I that I will. That I probably did say. I don't recall specifically and where I said mm-hmm. it. But there's a difference between saying I have inside information that leads me to believe that they're going to they're, they're going to close the doors or they're they're, they're going to take it and ask it because we did have that information. I had information they were literally taking the water coolers out of we were we did out of Stanford because they couldn't afford to put the hold water on in. they were taking water coolers out of Stanford Bruce so we 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 discontinued the the Ozark or whatever water <laughs> thing and the. Okay, it's a cost-cutting measure. It happens, okay? <laughs> no water for you, Bruce. Damn it, yeah, well, water's no, expensive. No filtered water, no spring water, yes, but it was simply a cost-cutting measure because we were putting everything back into competition. We were putting everything back into the business. You know, And there were those of us that took you know, massive cuts in pay just to be in the game. But there was a, but Bruce, my point was going to be, there's a difference between, as Chris pointed out, me saying, I've got inside, inside information that leads me to believe X, whatever that was, and me 
trying to rally the troops and charge forward by saying, let's put them out of business. I, I just don't believe I've ever, I ever felt that way. I may have said things that made people think that. I was determined to be number the one. Percept- and if by the way reality. I belly up in the process, so be it. But it wasn't my main goal to put anybody out of business. My main goal was to be number one at all costs. Well, but and, again, perception and, being reality, that was the perception. Well, and WCW was number one, Bruce, because uh, for for years WCW was crushing Raw on, on a weekly basis, Eight, 81 weeks or whatever it was. Cannot take that away from them. You know, and that's they, why they definitely did. But but again, how you know how they did it, and you you also have to look at the the talent themselves, why they went, okay? And when you don't have to, it was a completely different structure. At Turner, you got paid whether you worked or not. Here at the WWF, okay, you had to work to get paid. Now, if the houses were up, the crowds were up, made money, you made money. If they weren't up, you okay, didn't make that much money. Bruce, and that's, that's, a fair, that's a fair point, but let's put that into context. In WWF, you had a mature, decades-old um, licensing and merchandising complex behind the WWF. You had an, you had an infrastructure where if people worked, that you had a big pay-per-view revenue stream. You had a big licensing and merchandising revenue stream. You had all kinds of revenue streams that we didn't have. If Chris Jericho and, and anybody else would have come in, and I would have said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay a percentage on all of the licensing. I'm going to give you... 20 times more than Vince McMahon will give in your licensing and merchandising agreement. Guess what? 20 times more than zero was still zero. We didn't have that. Mm-hmm. So the only way we could get all be that competitive to, was to the talent. Salaries. The talent had never experienced that before. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It was different, but it created a, a field where, okay, I can buy all this talent, pay all this talent to sit on the bench, where we couldn't afford to pay them unless they performed. Unless they worked, and unless they grew money and made money and actually did get a licensing deal and were able to sell enough merchandise to realize that revenue. Well, you had on the flip side. They could go to Turner and hey, I'm getting a check every week. I haven't been on TV in two months. I'm still getting my check. Or two years, like Lanny Poffo. <laughs> Either way, he can, hey, <laughs> Lanny can thank Randy for that. Randy actually took the cut in pay. To make sure that Lanny got it. Wow! I've, I've said this publicly. I never before. knew that. Yeah. First of all, Randy Savage. When Randy came in, his Slim Jim deal came with him, and the Slim Jim deal—if it didn't completely pay for Randy, it paid for seventy-five percent of Randy. Hmm. Okay. And when Randy's contract the, the came up, deal came from the WWF. No, it came from Randy. It wasn't. No, it came from, <laughs> no, it came from WWF. It definitely came from the WWF. They had Warrior doing it. They had, and then Randy went around. With you guys, because that deal was in WWF's name originally. But that was going back to Randy and Lanny. That was that was one thing. When Randy's contract came up, he wanted Lanny to have a gig. And I, you know, I don't want to say anything negative about anybody at this stage of my life, but it, it, it was difficult for me to to justify. And Randy said, "I'll take cut pay." Hmm, to get Lanny there, wow! I mean, th- this is this is amazing, and and I'd like to be selfish and just have you guys continue. But we, we the big show, Dave and Buster's in Philadelphia, January twenty fifth. It's at one p.m. It's before the Royal Rumble. I mean, this this is so interesting. I want I want to be there to hear all well, why of this. Why don't you come there then? 
Oh, I'll, I'll, oh, well, maybe I'll come there, Bruce. Maybe, you know what? Not only that, because I'm Chris Jericho, I can't just sit in the crowd. I'm going to come sit up front with you guys. I'll moderate this thing. I'll moderate this thing to make sure you don't tear. That's what I'll do. Because I, I know both, especially Bruce, you're from Texas. Wait minute, you're nuts. Wait, 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 wait. You, you honest to God, will come. Okay, come to Philly on the 25th. So you will come to Philly and you'll moderate. I will be there because. You were on both sides. I was on both sides. I know both of you guys. I know Texas versus Minnesota. You guys will end up fighting each other if you don't have somebody up there to say, hey, stop it. So I'm going to be there. I will be there to moderate the Eric Bischoff, Bruce Pritchard debate because I want to hear what you guys have to say. This is so interesting. We could talk about this for hours, and you will be talking about this for hours on January 25th in Philadelphia. Now, if I have permission, am I allowed to do that, Bruce? Oh, my God. I'd love it. Eric, I'm I'm excited. You know, you know, I'm, I have one perspective because I was on one side. Bruce has his because he was on the other side. But Chris, you were right there. I'm, you were on both sides. In the middle. I, I think it's perfect, uh, this, and I very much appreciate it. This is going to be Dude, great, I guys. Tell you, we'll even go one better. We'll even like let you take some of the parts of the show, put them on your radio show. Oh, you let me use some of it as the podcast. All right, sold. Nice. Sold. You do that. We'll do that. Sold. Done. January twenty fifth. Dave and Buster's in Philadelphia, one p.m. It's Bischoff, it's Pritchard, it's Jericho, all together on stage. We're going to be talking about the Monday Night Wars. This is going to be really, really exciting. Guys, I'm really excited to uh, to talk to you guys, and uh, we're looking forward to this. You guys have a great new year. And get your best debates, because people are going to be there. They're going to be asking questions. They're going to ask you all the dirt about what happened uh, on the Monday Night Wars. And you know what? I'm See, fired up. Well, probably why we need, need you there, Chris, is because I forgot about that. The fans get to participate. They get to ask us questions. That's man. right. They get to be a part of the show and find out what, hey, you know, what happened here? Parts we forgot about. That's right. But is, uh, you know, an audience member, they're going, hey, what if? Come and find out. Not going to hold anything back. Exactly. January 25th, guys. We'll see you there in Philadelphia. Looking forward Thank to it. Thank you, man. See you there. All right. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks, guys. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas, see? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Talk is Jericho. All right, we're at the Gramercy Theater in a darkened room. 
You were you were working on that all day. No, right? that just came up. Are you right serious? Now. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god! I'm here with uh, my old buddy Snake Sabo from Skid Row. Yes, uh, and of course, sitting in is my uh, co-host Rich Ward. Is here. Howdy, howdy, and uh, what an awesome thing to have Rich a part of this as well. Yeah, because I'm a as I've said to you in the past when. When long time ago, when you said, you know, I'm putting this band together and so on and so forth, and his name came up, and I'm like, homeboy can play, man. Homeboy can play. You, and how did you know just from being around the scene for so long? Just, or I remember I was just telling him that I was familiar and, and with Stuck Mojo, and I always thought that they were like in front of something that was about to happen. And I, like on a precipice, but a little bit in front of, mm-hmm. of, of like this wave of something that, was, that came to be. And for some reason, it it didn't uh, it didn't translate the way I thought it should have, and I was always bummed by that. But then when you know, because obviously when you hear talented musicians and good song structure and things like that, not to get all weird, yeah, but yeah. when you hear stuff like that, you root for those people because you know that they're they work hard at it. Legit, and yeah. I want everybody to to be successful. That's my vibe. You know, yeah, yeah. anybody who works hard and takes it seriously and, and has talent and works hard at their craft, even if they don't have talent, but they work their asses off at it. Mm-hmm. I root for them. Yeah, me do, too. Do you find that rich with the, with Stuck Mojo? Were you ahead of your time? Is that the pro- or problem, if that's the word to use? Or it's it's always hard to be in the position where you're commenting on your own career, <laughs> totally. you know, because it, it can sometimes come across. But, no, as, no, no. But candidly, do you think that you were just ahead of your time? I mean, some band, trouble was ahead of their time. Totally. You know what I mean? Good call. Just, I, just. I do think that we were ahead of our time, and I also think that part of the problem was that we were a really angry group of dudes that refused to even acknowledge that there was a way to do things different from burn venue to the ground and <laughs> scream at the promoter you know what i mean like right, we, right, right. we we i think part of it was is that our vocalist bones was one part crazy amazing personality and one part insane like and it's that insanity that makes a great frontman, but it's also that insanity that causes everything to fall apart around you. Jeez, think you wouldn't know anything about that. No, no, I've never experienced anything, but I'm hearing something about like this for the first time. So. And, and you know, you have two. When we were kids, when I'm a you know 22 year old kid riding around in a van, I was mesmerized by that because I'm a kid from the suburbs, so I grew up in a predominantly lower middle class white neighborhood, working class neighborhood. I'd never been around an angry black man who studied history and knew about the history of, of the black race and understood about the government and how they used... I mean, right, like, right, right, right. And I was like, whether any of that was true or not, he was the first person I ever spoke to that ever knew anything about any conspiracy theories. Like, I took everything at face value. My parents didn't care about religion. My parents didn't care anything about politics. They went to work. They came home. We had dinner. We watched The Love Boat on Friday night. You know what I mean? It was like yes. we lived a normal right, life. Right, right. And so I fell prey to the Jim Jones. I became one of his minions. And, yeah. You know, and I carried a screwdriver in my back pocket waiting for someone to say something. Waiting for Whitey to come yeah, after you. That's right. You. Or anybody. You know, right. and we would, and I think that was part of, for me, I was too far in it. I was too far in the cult of that thing without, so that I couldn't stand back and say, you know what we could do? We could really make some minor adjustments. What, yeah. How was that for, for you, Snake, like uh, being in Skid Row and being such a, a big band? But having a singer where there's like obviously a personality clash 
or an issue where you know like we have to move on or we can't do this anymore. You know what? <laughs> you Sebastian was the perfect singer at the perfect time for the band that we were putting together. Right. It was so obvious. I like mean, the it prototypical was, rock star yeah. for that time. I mean, frame. he joined the band in 1987, and at that particular time, the songs we were writing were it was like almost as if they were written for him mm-hmm. if that makes any sense and it was a magical time there's no doubt about it and we knew that there were certain things that didn't mesh well but success will smooth all those bumps over <laughs> it always does it makes everything seem somehow better mm-hmm. you know it's on the other side of the roller coaster, you know, going up is like, okay, man, we're all in this together, and yeah, like that's an asshole move, but I'm not going to say anything about it, and and it goes for me too. I mean, I have to take responsibility in my own uh, part of of the breakup of, of that version of Skid Row, if you will. But as we start, as success started going away, you know, they say adversity, you know, uh, uh, breeds character, and, and but it doesn't; it reveals it, mm. and so your character gets revealed. I was brought up in a way that be humble, be thankful, uh, and whatever happens in life, be thankful that you're able to experience it. Mm-hmm. That's how my mom brought me up. So success I was thankful for, but I was always humbled by it. I knew it wouldn't last forever. Not that I wouldn't try, or I shouldn't say try, not that I wouldn't attempt to make it last forever, but I knew it wouldn't. And so when it, we were on the other side of that hill... I, it didn't. It, it was a bummer a little bit, but it wasn't like devastating. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think to him, it was really, really devastating. And so there was a lot of anger, man. And I swore that number one, I would ne- never let anybody else determine my own fate. That's going to be in my hands. And number two, I'm never going to do this being unhappy. It's not going to be joyless for me. It has to be an amazing experience. Look, everyone, every band's going to have troubles. That's the way it works. But at the end of the day, it's, you have to love what you're doing. And I think we all got to the point where we didn't love what we were doing anymore mm-hmm. together. Right, right, right. It wasn't the idea I loved playing music, but I was happier playing music by myself in on a chair in, in my room at my crib than I was going out and playing in front of a lot of people. And uh, I didn't want to bully the audience anymore. I didn't want to... Did you feel like you were putting on a facade? I felt that to a certain degree... We were because there was no communication for you know towards the very end between everybody. I mean, we even have some, but uh, Rachel and I, whose friendship was so tight, was being strained. Mm-hmm. Uh, my relationship, my friendship with Scotty was, and, and I blamed myself for that because you had two sides. You had our singer here, Sebastian, and then you had Rachel, Scotty, and Rob over here, me in the middle. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing. Luke warm water. <laughs> and I, you know what? I compromised my own opinions to attempt to be this glue that's going to hold this thing together. Now, that might have worked and it might have held the thing together for an extra couple of years. But I lost some of my own self-respect there, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. And I was compromising my opinions for the betterment of the band, for the greater good, if you will. So I've got to take responsibility for that. There are certain things I should have stood up for on on either side and I didn't because I felt that if right. I'm in the middle if I'm the referee if I'm Teddy Long <laughs> you know but but the thing is is that is is that I look at it now like we had a great run together the five mm-hmm. of us that incarnation of the band and I wish everybody success I've never had a bad thing to say about 
Sebastian or Rob. No, you never have. We and, talked about that. Yeah. And I and I won't because you know what? Whatever issues that we had with each other, um, it's nothing that's life threatening or it's not. You know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and still be happy, and I have my friends, and he does, and. I wish him success. I always do. I, I wanted to, to have Rich sit in just because you guys went through the same thing. Having this career that you're building and then knowing that the singer has to go. Yeah. Was it scary to know, like, you've built this up and now an integral part has to go or else we can't continue? Was it scary to think about what might happen on the other side? You probably you probably had more integrity than I did because I was so frightened to walk away from it. I... If, if I hadn't have met Chris, Stuck Mojo would probably have continued for a couple of more years. Because right. how old were you when this happened? Where were uh, you? I was old. I know exactly where it was. When our last show was in 96 in uh, uh, Hawaii or something? No, it was in Brazil. Oh, okay. It was in Rio. We were with uh, the Monsters of Rock then. It was Iron Maiden, Us, Motorhead, Biohazard, and Halloween. And uh, I remember the majority of us after the show, the next day we were sitting on the beach in, in Rio, and it was very calm and serene, and we were just all drinking, but there was this weird feeling, almost like a relief, that something was going to happen. And I guess inherently and subconsciously, I kind of knew where it was going. And then that Christmas was when it, it completely fell apart, and I remember that completely as well. Uh, but I tell you what, not I didn't want to jump in on your thing, but I was not scared. I was not scared at all. And because again, it goes back to I'll never let anybody else determine my own fate. And if it's if this is not a joy to do, if this is not something that is just making me completely happy, then I'm not going to do it. And I didn't do it until it made me happy again. And so you just. You kind of got to separate yourself from certain it's, things. It's like getting divorced. No matter what happens, even if I have to play guitar in a coffee shop, I would rather do this on my own than still continue with this, this partnership. That's why I'm okay. Like, it's no secret. I mean, we don't play to giant audiences anymore, you know? Mm. We play clubs, sometimes theaters. We play festivals in Europe, which is awesome when we get to do them. And But the thing is, is that I think a lot of people may have lost sight of something. Thankfully, I haven't and our band hasn't, is that... We are so fortunate to be able to play music for a living. That's what we get to do for a living. I freak out, man. I swear to God, more so now than ever. And I say it every night when we play a show that I go, you have guys have no idea. You guys give me the greatest gift in the world. I get to play music for a living. Mm -hmm. The biggest rush for me is seeing a kid out there or an older person or whomever singing the lyrics to 18 and Alive or something like that. And I go, holy crap, man. Like, I helped write that. And that's where I am. I'm still that 16-year-old kid, mm -hmm. seriously, in front of the mirror, pretending to be Ace Feely or Michael <laughs> Shanker. And I still do that to this day before every show. If there's a mirror in the room, I'll sit there and I'll be playing like rock bottom or something like that and going through it and <laughs> pretending to be Michael Shanker or, or whomever. <laughs> yeah, whatever, yeah. So that I wasn't scared is, is yeah. because I just – and there's also a certain thing like I always believed in myself one way or the other that right. – Somehow I was always going to make it through. Mm -hmm. I always no. told Doc McGee that, too. I was always like, I'll always figure out a way to make money, man. Yeah. I just want to be happy yeah. doing it. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I guess for me was, I never felt like Stuck Mojo ever lost momentum 
it, as a live band and as a recording band, what happened was we just didn't like each other at yeah. all. And there was those moments where, like, there, like you said, no communication. You ride separately. I don't even want to see you. Yeah. We get on stage. We fist fights. And just like that kind of stuff. And I knew it was going to have to come to an end. But the, the point is, is that what is... I, I've always lived my life one day at a time. I never looked. I never saved a dime. You know, I never did anything. It was always like looking right at where I was at that moment. I never sure. thought in terms of what what's my five year plan, what's my ten year plan. I was always like a soldier on the battlefield, fight, 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 and whatever happens later. So the idea is, what am I going to do? I met Chris. We played two two or three shows as a cover band yeah. and then Johnny Z offered us a record deal and I said wow this is what's supposed to happen and even though Fozzie wasn't a full time band at that point it was still an opportunity for me to put enough money in the bank and for me to take 10 minutes off the field to just rethink and once you have once your mind calms and it's not a have to yeah. then you can make some 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 decisions that that are ba- are good for you based on have to oh how am i going to pay the mortgage this month how am i going to eat those kind of things and as a touring band most of us are like the next gig is the we have to play this like even on right, Fozzie's right, right, tour right. sometimes your budget is based on every gig happening and how much t- how many t-shirts do you sell like, yeah and and that's just the that's the yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. nature of the music the industry that we, right. we live yeah. in today. But you know, we were talking about how you know you took this chance, and it was that was almost twenty years ago, which yeah. is funny. And you've had the new singer Johnny Solinger since maybe ninety nine or ninety nine exactly. And December ninety nine. The yeah. new record, I had to get, I had to look it up because it was a very <laughs> long title: Rise of the Damnation Army, United <laughs> World Rebellion, Chapter Two. <laughs> <laughs> the title of our, our record has more words in it than our lyrics do. <laughs> it's an album of instrumentals. <laughs> That's I mean, and it's uh, and it took you guys. Uh, I know you put out a record back in two thousand and six. There was one two thousand and one. It's been a while since you put out a seven new record, years. Yeah, and you did two basically within the course of, of a year, year and a half or so. Yeah. Uh, what was what spurred you to finally release another set of, of tunes? The idea. It's so funny. First of all, like this this record that we just came out with, and this is no lie, is the most fun I've ever had doing a Skid Row record in my life. And why is that? Man, because, again, it sort of starts like, okay, when Rachel and I get together to start writing, and we talk to each other every day, we've known, we know each other better than we know anybody else in our lives, family members included, we start out with a conversation. That's how our writing process starts. We start out with a conversation. Man, what's like all of a sudden we'll be like, okay, dude, how about the dude in Texas who's got Ebola? And that, you know what I mean? And that will fly somewhere. That's been the word of the day, I by know, the way. I, I think it's the third Ebola. I in, I you, you ask Billy Gray if he's going to give you Ebola. And Billy's like, what? <laughs> right. I don't even know what's real. Too bad there's not a band named Ebola. Like, <laughs> when, An- like yeah, when Anthrax got the <laughs> right. pop. You're like, yeah, Anthrax. <laughs> I know. I'll sell you the domain. <laughs> yeah. I know. And when they got the pop to him, like, you know what? How many people have been stricken with anthrax, and how many skid rows are there throughout the country, and they get the pop? <laughs> Not but, fair. Exactly. I thought I had, like, a universal <laughs> name, and then all of a sudden, anthrax. So anyway. Which so, is actually funny cookies. When I Google skid row to pull this up the title, yeah. the first thing that came up is skid row American area of, like, Yes. Town. Yeah. Exactly. It's the first thing that comes up. It wasn't even the band. It's, like, American no. ghetto. I know. I'm, like, third. <laughs> 
Because the second one probably comes up is Gary Moore's original First, band. <laughs> Skid Row, yeah. Los Angeles, yep. the area of downtown L.A. Yeah. As of the 2000 census, there yeah. you go. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> so you're getting ready to, put out the, to write this new record. Yeah, so we, we sit down and we start with a conversation. And the conversation always leads somehow to the songs. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we got to the, on the conversation of, dude, wow, you know, same question. Well, what, why do we do this? Like, why do we do this? And it came down, once all the bullshit gets, you know, stripped away, out, yeah. it comes out down to the fact that you're still, this is the truest and purest form of expression that we have as individuals. It's no, well, maybe it is, but it's, I say it's no coincidence that he saw Kiss a week after I did as our, both of our first concerts, and it, it, it it had it was an epiphany for both of us in, in the same way, mm-hmm. and it was it completely changed our lives. And that was he was forty miles away from me. I'd never met him before, and it was a week after I had seen Kiss, and we both had the same reaction. And then we both went down the same path of starting bands, playing cover songs, playing virtually the same stuff, writing songs. The only songwriters in our band until we met at a music store, and boom, we have a band, which is Skid Row. So. Getting back and stripping it all away, and we're like, man, why do we do this? And we realize that because everything that comes at us in life, the way that we process that and express it has always been through music, no matter what. So the problems we had as 16-year-old kids, they were profound in our 16-year-old mind. Obviously, the problems and, and things that you experience now in the world are completely different, but they're still as profound. So they still have that same impact as it, they did when you were 16. And when we processed those when we were 16, it was through music, and we're still doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it all comes back to that for us. And it all came back to going, I just love playing guitar. I just love playing guitar and making music, man. And it was, it's like all of a sudden, the cell phones are off, crack open a bunch of beers, uh, shut the doors, you know, and just jam, mm-hmm. the two of us mm-hmm. in a room, hanging out. Play, and that's the way it started in 1986 and so I think because that's the way it's been working the last two EPs more so this one than the first one it just was the whole process was awesome we uh we just seemed like we were in lock lockstep the whole way finishing each other's sentences kind of thing and that to me when that happens when you're writing with somebody and you're getting that back and forth and he's all of a sudden he'll split for 15 minutes you think he's going to take a dump and he comes out and he's got three verses of amazing lyrics and you're going seriously dude really <laughs> and then he'll go outside and, and for whatever and he'll come back in and I have the melody for the chorus and some of the lyrics and it's like all of a sudden you're going That's, this is why this mm-hmm. is why I do this what it's all about it's it so simple you know but a, a lot of times life convolutes all that now, and obviously, like you said, you, you mean, you're about ready to go over to Europe for seven weeks. You guys still do a lot of touring, which you've recently, because you didn't for a while. I didn't personally, yeah. You know, and now you're back in the yeah. groove of playing. Yeah. Playing the new songs is probably such a rush. It's awesome. You know, to, to, to have, obviously, you got your hits, but to do something new is, is probably a pretty cool experience, It's all too. great. Like, I, I read so many times about people getting s- sick of playing their the older hits, material. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, I'm thankful I have them to play. Yeah. Like again, it goes back. I'm, I'm a real simple person. You know what I mean? And and like I said, the fact of seeing a person in that audience singing your song back on a Tuesday night in Greenville, you know, I mean, that's pretty awesome. Those people could have done anything else in the world that night. Sure, they decided to buy a ticket, and get a babysitter, or do whatever they had to do, find a designated, whatever they had to do. They had to make plans. 
to come to see come. you. It wasn't just like they were going down the street and go, oh, I, let's walk in here and yeah. see Skid Row play. No, they made a conscious effort to do that, spend their hard-earned money. That doesn't get lost on me ever. Now, we're, we're music fans. We know, you know, which bands and who and what lineup is with. Are there people that still come to shows and see a singer with long blonde hair belting out your tunes that still think it's Sebastian? Yes. And how, how does Johnny take that? How do you take it? I don't. I find it amusing. <laughs> I find it amusing. I mean, just, you know what? How can you judge stupidity? You know, I mean, but I think that with Johnny, take, he's fine with it because the thing is with him is he, he he's a guy, he's a, a singer of Skid Row with long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And some people might not be aware, you know, mm-hmm. just are not in the loop anymore, right. if you will. I get it. It's fine. Sure. Well, you you know? guys were a huge radio band, so people connected first with the music. Totally. And and it's the same thing with Foreigner. When we saw Foreigner, right. it's, like, it's like if the guy that's up there is singing the balls off the song, a lot of time the average person who is not the liner note, dig deep, you know, that kind of fan may not even that's know. That's a great point. And I don't, and I, unlike you, I'll take it either way. Yeah, so man. Who cares? That's right. I bet you there was a lot of people that show we went and saw Foreigner and Sticks together. How were they? That had no They were great. Both Kelly's were great. great. He was great. He, he won me over because at first I was like, because there's no original members in Foreigner when we watch them. Oh, Mick wasn't even playing guitar? He comes guitar? out five songs in. Wow. So to me, I always have an issue that being one of those guys. But that ha- Kelly Hansen won me over, oh, man. Oh, he's good, man. And he's same with Dan- uh, 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 Gowan. It's Dennis sticks. Young's yeah. replacement yeah. Oh, he's awesome. It's great. And I'll yeah. bet there's a lot of people that didn't even know. And, and, and does it matter? If, you, if your catalog is about songs connecting with people and their relationships and memories with those songs, and, and at some point... We, we we have to take people where they are, right. you know, and yeah, maybe they're dummies at some level, <laughs> you know what I mean, and maybe they should take more of an interest, or maybe they shouldn't, maybe they should just, if they want to come and they drop 30 bucks on a ticket, God bless them, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, without that, right, where... Hey, man, I, to, to yeah. me, it, it's, it's, it's all a compliment regardless, yeah. it means at least they're familiar with the band on some level, yeah. at least they recognize some of the songs, at least mm-hmm. they're... They're taking a chance and coming to see it. Now, if they walk away and they're and they're bummed, I, that sucks, and I'm bummed about that because that means I didn't do my job to the best of my ability, at least in my own Polish mm-hmm. brain. But um, <laughs> you know, at least give it. Give, if they're giving you a shot, all good with me, man. Yeah. Right. Rich mentioned something earlier before we went on the air. You were talking about uh, about Subhuman Race, the record, and to me, one of the most underrated records of all time. You and Eddie Trunk. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and Rich as well. What were you saying about, about Subhuman Race? I bought like three albums before we started working on our newest record, Do You Want to Start a War? That's the first one I bought. Uh, rebought. You know, mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Wow, and thank you. Because, well, it's just an amazing album, songwriting, production, everything, in it, but, it's, but it's, a, it's a total package album in that it's like all the boxes are ticked. <laughs> Attitude, you know, riffs, Thank you. aggressive sound. Like it's, it's, it's a, people it's forget that was produced by Bob Rock. Yeah, it yeah. was a great production on that. Oh, well. uh, Rachel can't stand it. Really? Oh, why? Well, because we 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 worked a lot differently with Michael Wagner, mm-hmm. and Michael was very much a part of the band. Mm-hmm. And then when we decided that we needed to, not needed but wanted to do something different, and Bob came to New Jersey and we spoke with him. It was like, you know, when Bob had said something to Rachel during the course of making the record, like, well, no one really play, pays attention to the bass tone anyway. And Rach, the top of Rachel's head blew off. <laughs> it was unbelievable, man. He just went, he walked out of the studio like, screw this, screw him. I mean, and then, you know, 
In, in, in Rachel's eyes, Bob has never recovered. You know, yeah, he's the devil. Yeah, he's the devil. But I'm not to throw you, but I think that that was funny. I like the record. Mm-hmm. I like the record. It, it's a painful record in in a lot of ways because it was painful to make. I should say, not painful to listen to, <laughs> but painful to make. You know, I heard I heard Subhuman Race the other day for the first time. The song, probably, yeah, mm-hmm. probably for the first time, and it's got to be. Well over ten years, you know. I never listened to our stuff after we're done recording it. <laughs> and at first, I didn't know who it was. And then I was like, <laughs> "Would it just come on shuffle or something?" Well, Eddie played it. Oh, okay. And without me realizing, I was talking as I'm always doing. <laughs> and and that riff came out. I'm like, "This is cool!" Whoa! I was like, "Oh, that's us!" <laughs> I wrote that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. I kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a tough record to make. I. I, and I, uh, the end result I loved. Mm-hmm. I got to be honest, I really did. But I knew we were cursed when Rolling Stone gave it an amazing review and and said the best riffs this side of of uh, Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger. And I was like, it's over, it's over, <laughs> we're <So>. done. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, you, you, I think one of the reasons why is that for what because of the time frame when you came out, eighty nine ish. Yeah. You were classified unfairly as a hair band because you had long hair. Right. But with a few exceptions of like maybe Can't Stand the Heartache or something Ugh. like that. <laughs> Skid Row was always a very, very heavy band. And especially, I could not believe the first uh, time I heard Monkey Business on Slave of the Grind, which is the opening track. Right. Like, this is Skid Row? Like, holy shit. This is so heavy. Yeah, that was funny because Lars and James couldn't believe it either because they were doing the Black Album That's at the right. same time. And we brought Lars over to, to listen to that and Slave to the Grind. and Because and, Bob was doing I haven't been friends with Bob Rock for a long time. Okay. So, so you were recording in Vancouver as well? well no, we were, we, were, we were in L.A. We were okay. both in L.A. at the time. And uh, we were finishing up and, and starting to mix the record. And, uh, yeah, I remember them hearing the Rip to Monkey business. Because Lars had heard some stuff and, and said, James, you should come hear some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And James heard Monkey Business and just looks at me and goes, this isn't you guys. <laughs> like, yeah. So how was it for you when you're like, yeah, it is? Because that's the real you. I mean, you've always had that stuff. I mean, you're in freaking Anthrax. But, right. <laughs> you, know, you do have that right. chunk. So did you feel like you had to prove, like, you know, we're not a hair band, guys. This is really the band. On some level, sure. Yeah. I mean, th- I'll tell you what. That, that record wasn't by accident. You know, mm-hmm. that was definitely by design. It was – we had come – we had grown up so much in the two years since the release of the first record, uh, touring with Bon Jovi, touring you know, uh, with Motley, touring with Aerosmith, Aerosmith yeah. uh, doing some of our own shows, and, and we had really, it, 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 I'm so Polish and dumb that I had no idea really uh, how that we were. I had no idea that we were popular. Mm-hmm. Dare I say famous? Mm-hmm. And I had no idea. I mean, and maybe I did, but I just didn't. I didn't know what to degree. So I remember going, you know, Christmas shopping with my buddy at a mall in East Brunswick, New Jersey, my buddy Mike. And I don't know. I'm just going Christmas shopping for my family. I got a couple bucks now. I can buy my family some yeah. decent stuff, you know, <laughs> like a, a $3 gift card. You know? <laughs> Windshield wiper fluid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. A shoehorn. <laughs> from the gas station. Right, right. right. <laughs> air freshener, the pine tree air freshener. So I'm like, okay, you know, I can, you know, get a 10 pack. So, yeah. And uh, and we were in a small right next to my hometown, and it just got really crazy. It got really, really crazy. People recognize you. Yeah, and so we was 
I was really blown away by that. I was taken aback by it because I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like Johnny, eat a slice of pizza, drink a beer, do a shot. You know, go about your business. Yeah, yeah. And so it was very strange, and that was a, a really weird awakening for me in in a way, good and bad. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. But uh, when we got done with that record, so much had happened to us. We had grown up, and we had seen a lot of stuff that maybe. You know, maybe we were so idealistic, uh, mm-hmm. and even with all the success, we'd experienced some stuff too as well. Just in, in seeing the world, that you know, got to us, made us angry, made us you know, and that all our records have always been about whether it's it's blatant or not, just being being better, being better, being good, taking care of your brother, man, being good to those around you, mm-hmm. and you know, some comedy in there as well. I mean, it's not like get the f- out as a political you know, <laughs> statement but <laughs> so but that's what we where we were coming from but it, the the aggressiveness was it was there and we wanted to put that out there mm. and, that, and it was we we're so proud when that record was done because i remember our, our a and our guy jason flam going it's one of the best records i've ever heard in my life where you just lost half your audience wow and uh and he goes i love it and he to, to credit Jason and, and Doug Morris and Atlantic Records, everybody who worked over there at the time, they let us do exactly what we wanted to do. They didn't step in once. They didn't sit there and say, I don't think so. Everything that we wanted to do on that now, record. Now, did you lose half your audience or did yeah. you gain a whole new one? Well, I think we gained, I think we, well, we, what we lost was, and, and I know why he said that, and it was true. I remember you, there wasn't I remember you too on the record. Right. And there so, wasn't because the ballads were very dark. Right. On that. Right. Yeah. And so it was uh, It was interesting. And I, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And it made sense to me in the back of my mind. But in my proud frontal lobe, mm-hmm. I was like, screw you, man. Screw you. <laughs> but if you made that album again, I think you could have been in danger of losing half your audience again anyway. Yeah. For, yeah. For, if you made the first Skid Row yeah, album. that's right. right. I agree. I, I think if it would have been another Skid Row with another couple, like, like I say, can't stand it, I'm not busting your balls, but no, no, I, I might have lost interest. But that got my interest and made me, then I was a true blue Skid Row fan. Thank you. And then Seriously, yeah. you earned everyone's respect in the heavy community by taking Pantera out. The fact that they were even, that they would said yes to it was amazing to us. I'll tell you. Quick. And you're the only band that could have done it at that time. Like, and that's the, that's the, maybe the only band that no, I'm not worthy. It. That's right. The so only tell, tell, band that was heavy enough and had the balls to take Pantera. Tell us that about moment. that because you had just kind of gotten to headlining status yeah. of your own. Well, we got off. We had just finished doing the Guns N' Roses tour. Uh, yeah, because you opened the Guns N' Roses tour like in Europe or here. Too? No, in the States. We did. Uh, we did seven months in the States and then a couple months in Europe. Gotcha. Did uh, you open the the Metallica? Guns no. N Roses tour? Okay. No, that was that's another story okay. there. Okay. But uh, I would have loved to, and we were offered it, but it, 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 a stupid okay. a stupid business move on one of the management who tried to undercut us by by five thousand dollars. Not understanding that I knew what the offer was to another band. Like, it's seriously, yeah, really? That's the, like, that's the hard part, the business. Am I the stupid guitar player that you think I am? I think <laughs> not. <laughs> anyway, um, it, and it was kind of, it was a slap in the face, but... But we're talking about the Pantera thing, though. Right. right. So we, Scotty Hill was the one who suggested Pantera. He heard the Cowboys from Hell record and turned us on to it. He's like, we should take these guys out. And we were thinking about what to do, who to take out us, and... Ironically, we invited Nirvana to come out with us. No way. 
who were originally called Skid Row. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. And we invited them, and they said no because we were too homophobic. Because <laughs> Faz had that yep. shirt, AIDS oh. kills, fags dead, or whatever. Caused a big controversy. Oh, God. That was one of the worst days of my life, too. Yeah. I had quite a few of them. And, um, <laughs> with him. <laughs> this this not being one of them yeah. <laughs> yet. <laughs> we haven't we haven't caught Ebola yet. You never know. You never know, man. <laughs> but I, it was uh it's so Scotty's was like, man, we should take these guys out. And we figured we were like we all listened to record, we all loved it. Mm-hmm. Had never met the guys before. Um and we called them up and, and did three shows in the end of ninety one. And played New Year's Eve in New Orleans with them at mm-hmm. the uh, at the arena there, whatever the arena is. The and sold Dome. out. Right, the, right, the double, you know. Mm-hmm. We played the Tokyo Dome in New Orleans. <laughs> and, the, and it sold out, and they were such great guys. And the oddest friendships developed there, specifically like Philip Anselmo and I became so close. It's just like this, no one thought that would ever happen. To where now you actually manage it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but he's... They all were just phenomenal, phenomenal people. And to see that band every night just go out there and grow, and were they just destroyed every night. There was not one night that that band did not destroy on some level. And that was perfect for us. That's exactly what we needed. How, why is that? How is that for you when you see the band on before you just killing it? It, makes, it? it can do one of two things. You can either go, oh, sh- we ain't got a chance tonight. <laughs> or you go, you know what? We're going to be better than that. Yeah. We will be better than that. And that's the mindset that we took every night. Whether we succeeded or not, I'm not that person. I can't I can't say that. But every night we went out there with a mission, and it was largely through two reasons. One, because we were following them, and they, and they put on such a great show. And two, we needed to overcome a uh, a perception of, of, of who we were. Hair band. Yeah. Exactly. And so... When we had the respect of those guys, like I said, the fact that they even said yes to come out and play with us. I mean, they had played with, uh, you know, Prong and Judas Priest and... and Very heavy, heavy bands. Bands that I love, of course. And and for them to sit there and say, okay, you know, we have an opportunity to play in front of, you know, anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 people a night, sometimes 10,000. But they, I know Philip, Philip was like... We wouldn't have done this if I if we all didn't think that you guys jammed. And I was like, <laughs> right on, you know. Right yeah. On. And and then they came out with vulgar display of power while we we're on tour, and it debuted at number thirty nine for them. And I I remember I was like, because you watching your people who have become part of sure, your family, they're like your kids, your little brothers. Oh yeah. my god! And Dimebag, I mean, you can't even express. What an interesting, amazing impact he had on all of us. Uh, as a player or as a person? Both. Mm. Both. It was so much fun, man. We would have so much fun. But Philip and I, we were off in our own world quite a bit and wrote the worst songs possible on purpose and did the stupidest <laughs> stuff. And no one would laugh. We'd be the only two people laughing. And everyone's like, leave the idiots alone or whatever. <laughs> Those are your best friends, though. The yeah, ones exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, did did, did, did uh, playing with them influence the Subhuman Race record? Absolutely. That was even heavier than, absolutely. than uh, absolutely. Slave to the Grind. Yeah. I remember, okay, so the record comes in, their record comes in at number 39, and we, uh, I remember looking at them and going, ah, you guys are a top 40 band. Ah! <laughs> and it was great. It's just to be able to be a part of that. And, and, you know, everybody, you can give anybody a platform. Mm-hmm. 
it's up to them whether they right, take it. Right, give them the ball and see if they want to if they can And run man, with it. boy did they ever. And to me, I was like, this is so great. And I remember we were playing the Paramount Theater at Madison Square Garden and uh, all the, the big wigs from, you know, Doug Morris is there and Ahmed Erdogan's there. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, all the MTV folks, Rick Krim and um, Abby Konowich at the time. And, and, and I'm on his side because now I'm, I'm, I'm like screaming the Pantera, you know, you're flying the flag. Yeah. Oh, totally. And, and so I made sure that those guys, they were in our party room, you know, all Mm. these whatever luminaries. And I was like, (laughs) no, 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 no. Out here, you got to see this. And sure enough, and then uh, they started playing this love on MTV and stuff, which was awesome. And And the next thing you know, yeah. And I was just so proud. I still am. I mean, that was, again, you talk about a magical time, you know, and, and then Soundgarden ended up coming out with us on that tour wow. as well. Wow. And, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And they did a month with us. Was that Bad Motor Finger? Or? Yep. Wow. Yeah. When they were still in the right. And I saw you in Canada with Killer Dwarfs. Who, and yep. Pantera, right. Yeah. And that. They had some steam back then, the Dwarfs oh, did. Man, I yeah. Loved yeah. Them. They, they, they had they had a really good record at that time. Russ. Just, Russ and Daryl are both great. You know? Riding the tricycle on stage. Yeah. Oh, dude. So Canadian, man. Like yeah. You think that I'm Canadian. You should see these guys. Oh, they're full It's a different on. world of Canadian. Yeah. They just started calling everybody Dunks. What's up, Dunk? <laughs> I'm like, Dunk? And it stuck. <laughs> but you're talking about the bands you went with, and we mentioned in passing, you're, you're one of your first tours was Bon Jovi and Aerosmith, and uh, I can't remember who you said the other Motley. one. Motley. Motley. How was it for you going out there just being a dunk from New Jersey? <laughs> going out with, like, I mean, those guys, and especially, like, you know, Aerosmith, I mean, oh. did you did you have some, some a lot of interaction with those Tons. bands? Because yeah. I'm, I'm the guy, I'm not afraid to go up and talk to anybody. You're and, social. And, and I'll endear myself as best as I can with everybody. Yeah. And... I was the same way with like uh, with Nikki. I started talking to him on the phone in '89. Our publicist at the time knew his publicist and somehow mm-hmm. got in touch with him. And obviously, same management at the time, McGee and, and Doug Thaler. And uh, so we got on the phone and started talking to each other. And I think I, I didn't know what my lead in line would be to, to talk to him. And, and here I had. The first record, Motley record on Leather Records, okay, and, yeah. and so I was playing those the original, songs. original, yeah, yeah, right. And I was playing those songs, and that record, when it came out on on Electra, that was the reason why I wanted Doc McGee to manage us because oh. I remember seeing Doc and Doug Thaler's <laughs> name on there, and then all of a sudden Doc's managing John Bon Jovi he lives right up the street from me and and then all of a sudden John brings home this record yeah this is Doc's other band I go I know this Motley Crue and it was the Shout of the Devil record mm-hmm. and it had you know the the gatefold you open up pentagram and, oh and the embossed pentagram and <laughs> I mean I, f- I feel it right now you know it's like that flat black on I, I thought they were girls I, I, I look. I said. Uh, I looked. Tommy and Nikki. I didn't know their names. Those two chicks are hot. That's one of the ugliest girls I've ever seen. Mick Mars. Right. And I couldn't figure out how the blonde one was so flat chested that she wasn't even wearing a shirt. Remember, was this from a magazine or something? No. My friend showed me the album. He's oh, like, okay. I'm like, these are these are girls. Another guys. You know, you didn't see anything like. Well, that. you were a lot younger than me. Yeah, so yeah, I can yeah, understand, yeah. I can understand. You knew the difference between a boy and a girl. Right, right, I right. did not. Well, only by feeling, not by seeing. So <laughs> you weren't there yet. Yeah, exactly. That chick so, has a very large tampon. Unbelievable, <laughs> mom. So, so we uh, when when I got in touch with him, I, I was like, how do I, how do I sit there and like start a conversation? And I'm like, 
I'm like, man, he's he's got some piercings. He's like, hey, dude, I'm thinking about getting my nipple pierced. Like that's like that the first thing. Line. That was my opening <laughs> line. And he goes, don't do it. He goes, he goes, which one? I go, my left one. He goes, dude, don't do it. I'm like, well, why? And he goes, because your guitar strap it'll fuck you up. I'm like, oh. and that started, and we became friends, and and uh, kept a, a dialogue going when we were. Uh, played the Moscow Music Peace Festival. I want to talk to you about that. And that's when everything went down, where Motley fired Doc and Tommy Lee punched Doc in the back of the head. On that festival? Oh, yeah. Well, first, tell us about that, because that seems like, from what I know as a fan, you guys all basically got on a plane and flew to Moscow. And it, that must have been like Sodom and Gomorrah on that it, plane ride. Because look who was on there. Ozzy, yeah. Zach and his insanity, all you guys from Skid Row, yeah. the Motley guys. Uh, who else is on there? Bon Jovi, bon Jovi Cinderella, Cinderella, Scorpions. Scorpions. I mean, these are some of the biggest bands and some of the biggest partiers by legend ever. You know who the only people who didn't party on that flight? Who? Motley Crue. Really? They had just gotten sober. Wow. They had just gotten sober and they made Dr. Feelgood sober, which we sang on. And that's how I started to become really close with Nikki. We were up in in Vancouver on tour with Bon Jovi, and we were playing uh, the BC Place, okay, and uh, which is the Enormo Dome. It of, is right? the big arena, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I saw the BC Lions when the when the great nice. there. Nice, yeah. all right. Um, yeah, the Eskimos were nowhere to be found. So, <laughs> <laughs> so a little Canadian football there you thing. Go. Yeah, the dwarfs and Canadian <laughs> right, football. Right. What more do you want? <laughs> right, it's for Canadian fans. So, right, thank you. So. Uh, we were uh, Aerosmith was in the studio mm-hmm. doing Pump, mm-hmm. and Motley was doing Feel Good, Doctor Feel Good. Now think about that for a moment. In the same in the same studio, wow. the same studio, uh, Little Mountain. Wow. So in one room, Bruce Fairburn's working with, with Aerosmith, Aerosmith, and then Bob Rock's working with Motley Crue on these two seminal albums. Yeah, that's right. Classic. I, mean, yeah. I mean, think about that. Probably sold twenty million between the two of them in the states alone. I mean, that's yeah. like it's like Led Zeppelin. Working on Led Zeppelin Four over here, and then like Deep Purple working on Machine Head <laughs> yeah, over, over there. there yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. that's crazy, right? And, and so Nikki's like, we met him and and uh, come on, come sing on, on one of the songs, and we're like, wow, <laughs> okay. So we did, and they came up and they jammed Live Wire with us, and Aerosmith got up with Bon Jovi. So mm-hmm. it's crazy time, man, and you know, processing that, navigating through all that emotion that's going <laughs> yeah. on there. I'm like, I give up. I'm just happy to be here. So, so tell us about the plane ride going over to Moscow with all these guys. So Zach and I, who we've known each other. Another from, Jersey guy. Right. I knew him at the music store where I met Rachel at. That's where I met Zach at. Zach was an 18-year-old kid who barely spoke a word. <laughs> but he would come in and he'd just pick up a, like a guitar off the wall. And real like, okay, you're going to play this? I'm like, yeah. Classical guitar, like Jaco Pastorius meets <laughs> yeah. Paco de Lucia meets you know whoever. All those guys, right. And I'm going, this is insanity, man. And then pick starts playing like an electric piano. I'm like going, really, really? <laughs> Can't leave anything for the rest it's, of us. It's like, can uh, you sing too? Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> good thing you're not good looking. So, <laughs> so, right. Good thing you don't look like a rock star. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Prototypical one or <laughs> That's anything. Right. And so Zach had gotten a gig with Ozzy, and we had gotten signed shortly thereafter. So we, it was crazy, the same area of, of New Jersey. And uh, we had not seen each other in a while. So he flew in from California to Newark with the, that, with the West Coast contingent on this plane. So it was Motley and, and Ozzy, and Ozzy, you know, Geezer Butler was playing with him at the time. So they flew in uh, to Newark. 
where us and Cinderella and Bon Jovi were. And Zach and I hadn't seen each other, so we're like, oh, it's on. <laughs> so we were, we were both, you know, uh, amateurs attempting to be <laughs> professionals at the game of drink. <laughs> and we proceeded probably to annoy everybody on that flight because at one point or another, everybody took a nap except the two of us. Wow. And we were on fire, man. Was it 15 hours or so? It was, no, it was because we had to, then we had to go to London oh. to get the Scorpions. And so, <laughs> we got to pick up the Scorps in London. Yeah. So we're, so, and then go to Moscow. So the whole trip for me uh, and Zach, by the time we went to sleep in Russia, which was about 6.30 the next morning, and everyone had was done with us, <laughs> and we were still terrorizing everybody in the hotel, <laughs> was we were up. he was up like 37 hours. I was up 32. Wow. And this is just booze because none of us did drugs or anything like that. It's just drinking, and we were on fire. And I remember Geezer Butler passed out, and we stole his bottle of bourbon. <laughs> and here it is. This is like for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. <laughs> Right, which is supposed to be about you know stay off drugs and alcohol. But <laughs> they picked the wrong guys oh, for that. My, and the only people who were sober are Motley Crue. Now I mean it's just <laughs> yeah. the most crazy, it's a bizarre crazy. world. Yeah. And how, like, how was Ozzy on that? He was. Uh, I don't think he got plastered. I think Sharon was keeping it together oh, okay. with him and stuff. But I sorry, we started calling it like the Make a Different Drink Foundation because. <laughs> That's what it was. I mean, we were going berserk, man. I mean, Zach and I were I mean, – seriously, it was bad, man. Now, was this a chartered flight? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, you figure all those bands and their, you know, their, their, their crew people, members yeah. and stuff. I mean, there was a lot of people out there. So man. when you go to play that show, I mean, how did you even decide what the order was going to be? I mean, you got some legitimate – like, I'm sure those guys were duking it out to who's going to go on last. We, Ozzy was like – it was funny because, you know, it was going to be – it always seemed like it was going to be, you know, Bon Jovi Motley Crue because it was put together by McGee. Mm-hmm. Turns out that the, the the people that were most well known over there were really the Scorpions and, and Ozzy, spe- specifically Ozzy. Mm-hmm. They know who Ozzy was. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, everybody knows who Ozzy is. Mm-hmm. George Bush, you know, knows who Ozzy is. So um, I'm sure uh, Gorbachev knew him as well. You know, <laughs> yeah. but it was. I stayed away from all that. It didn't infiltrate our sort mm-hmm. of thing. We knew we were going on at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And we, again, you're in, in, in Russia. They're the bad guys. You know, when you're growing up. In, Especially in, in the 80s. Exactly. Yeah. You're growing up in New Jersey. We boycotted the 1980 Olympics, which was at Lennon Stadium, which is where we were playing. Wow, okay. And uh, they were the bad guys. You're in school, social studies. They're the bad guys. History, they're the bad guys. And uh, they were not. They were great. And there were 75,000 people there. And I'll never forget, we had to do a sound check at like 6 o'clock in the morning. It was, wow. It was brutal. We didn't go to sleep, really. <laughs> you know, we were just Russian vodka, yeah. <laughs> and uh, like, it's so much, like it's so much different, you know? <laughs> right. Because like, yeah, well, it's in Russia. It's right. like eating spaghetti in Italy. Right. Exactly. Right. right. It's probably worse, but right. in exactly. Italy. Exactly. Yeah. So all of a sudden, we, we're getting ready to go on, and the stage is, is one of those, uh, you know, the spinning stages, and mm-hmm. you have set up behind, mm-hmm. and it turns around. And I'll never forget, we're standing on there, and I look up, and, and they light the Olympic torch for the first time mm-hmm. since we had boycotted the Olympics in 80. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's just crazy. Historical. And I'm thinking myself, because I, again, I'll go and do every interview imaginable, and we were being broadcast. It's some ungodly amount of countries, like 116 countries or something like that. And again, 
I'm a guitar player from New Jersey, dude. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, um, a year ago, I was playing at the, you know, Stone Pony. <laughs> yeah. And now, uh, less than a year ago. and No, it was about a year ago. So, I'm going, this is, like, uh, out of control. And, right. Uh, and had the greatest time. Had no idea about this stuff going on with with Motley and Bon Jovi. Because there was always, like, this Oh, there was tension between the two? Well, yeah, because, you know, Doc, Doc was signed Motley with Doug Thaler. And then when Doc signed John and Bon Jovi, Doc gravitated towards that, and Doug took over Motley. So what happened was, was you know, Motley went on, and they were great, and uh, and sober, and you know, they were in in fighting form, and and a great yeah game. yeah yeah, ready Excuse to me. kick it yeah yeah, and he did, and then so everybody was supposed to have the same stage show, and all of a sudden Bon Jovi comes out, and there's pyro. Oh. And Tommy Lee sees this and walks right up to Doc and goes, you effing liar, and punches him in the head. Wow. Gets off the stage. There's this big ruckus. Now, I'm in the back in, the in like, the hallways, and I'm, you know, woohoo! <laughs> I'm drinking, you know, the whole bit. <laughs> ah, this is great. And I see Tommy, yeah, you, like, yelling and stuff, and I'm like, and what's going on? You yeah, know, yeah, I'm like yeah, this yeah. stupid kid, and my, he- you know, a band that I've looked up to and I admire, and oh no, you know, and someone's oh, Doc got punched in the head, and next thing you know, Tommy's in this dressing room and he's oh, down in a bottle of vodka. I'm like, oh boy, oh, here we go. Oh, oh so he was sober, but then not anymore. Yeah. Uh oh. And of course, you know, our singer is egging him on, and I'm going, this- dude. Yeah, I'm like, this is bad, man. This is bad. Turns out that uh, Motley got on a plane and went home. And didn't go on the same plane with us, oh. and they're like, and they fired Doc and Doug, uh, stayed with Motley and oh wow, and, uh, but so that happened, rift. Right, okay, yeah. and that wow, happened. yeah, you know, and, and so you talk about going around the world and doing all these things and 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 you know, drinking vodka in Russia. Something else you did that we've never talked about this in in detail. <laughs> First time we met <laughs> yep. was at. A wrestling show in, in Japan. Japan. Yep, and it was at a small little city called like Iwate or some wherever the hell it was. It was Iwate. Was it okay? Wow, good memory for me. I'll tell you. I know why I remember that. But, but, but. I, I remember wrestling and seeing, or maybe I'd met you before. But like, here's Snake Sabo from Skid Row in the middle of this little Japanese. What's the story behind that? Okay, we and, and you, I think you had found out from somebody that we were Perry been, Saturn. That's right. Perry Saturn. Oh God, love him, Perry. Yeah. My God, I hear he's doing okay now. Yes, he's Thank doing much God. better. Oh, yeah, much good. better. Because he's not a Jersey guy. Where is he from? Philly, Philly, Philly isn't he? maybe. Yeah. yeah, Philly. Yeah, Philly or Pittsburgh. One of the two. Right, right, right. I think it's Philly. Because Philly, I think right. you're right. Yeah. And um, thank God he's doing well because he's a sweetheart. He had man. a rough ride, man. Or did yeah. he ever? He'd be a great guest on this. To My gosh, you talk yeah. about talk about winning yeah ups and downs like, get, for oh. sure and getting it together for sure but um, so anyway so Perry, we, Perry and I were overseas for war right. WAR wrestle and romance that's oh. right that's what it's which one were you there for and <laughs> <laughs> I was there for the and yeah yeah wrestle and romance that's right and that's what we were working for at the time so my guitar tech at the time this guy Elwood Francis Elwood yeah, yeah whom uh, he works for uh, Billy Gibbons and oh. has forever and he worked for Joe Perry, and we stole him from Aerosmith and came and worked with us. And he, he's a, a total mark, man, mm-hmm. as I am. And, and so all we would talk about on the road is wrestling, you know? Yeah. And, 
everything. We used to get the torch, the newsletter, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and so we we were big fans. And and he had seen a poster, and he says, "Dude, Mil Mascaris, Bob Backlund, That's right, and Jimmy Snuka, Jimmy that Snuka, was the tour. you." Well, I was Harry. just a nobody at the time, but yeah. but because I'm the idiot and and I I'm like so. I you knew. read the torch. Right. Gotcha. Right. So I knew, and Ellen knew of you, and of course I had known Perry. And um, what year was this? Ninety-five. 95. Yeah, ninety-five. They were this there. This is even pre-ECW. Yes, they were touring Subhuman Race because in Japan, you won't say this, but I will. They were massive in Japan. They were playing Budokan, and I had watched on the Wow Wow Network. They had shown the Subhuman Race concert live, and I'd just seen it a few nights before, like three in the morning or something. And you guys were on a three-week tour of Japan, yes, we were. which is impossible to do. Dude, very they were good. so big, they toured all across the country, and that's how we would ended up in Iwate because we were doing we were doing places that the interpreters didn't even go. Yeah. Like that's wow. how remote it was. Yeah, and so Elwood had found out about your your show, and he was like, "We gotta go." I'm like, well, how are we going to get there? He's like, okay, because we weren't we weren't playing Iwate at that time, yeah. so we had to go back. To train or something? To two trains, and it took us like two hours to get there. <laughs> it was a day off, and we're like, we, we got to go. Yeah. We were like, we have to go. And we went, and it was wild, man, because it was like kind of like fluorescent lighting, if mm, I'm not mistaken. Bright. No barriers. Yeah. If I remember, I remember walking in, and it was just the aluminum chairs all the way back. It's basically you, a high school gym. Exactly. Yeah. But I remember your dressing rooms were up towards the left. There was like a, a like a cement step walkway up with those pipe railing that went around, and the dressing room was up there. And I remember seeing you talking to Mil Mascaris, and I was like, <laughs> but here's the coolest thing. And this is, I just told this the other day. So we're sitting there, and, and we're into it. I mean, again, I'm full on Mark, man. And I'm not a smart, I'm a Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting there watching, and Chris is in there, and all of a sudden he's yelling, like, lyrics from our Subhuman Race yeah. record. He's yelling, if, if you're, if you're a new guy, guy, let me see a miracle. <laughs> Try to impress him with lyrics. And I'm looking, I'm looking at that, and I'm going, did you hear that? And I'm freaking, because, of course, uh, I'm like... This I remember I slammed the guy to do the lion salt, and I, I screamed that over at Snake. If you're a new god, let me see a miracle. And then Dude, I went and did the move. It was, <laughs> and I'm going, and that was, again, the show stealer, if you will. I wasn't, I, and I, I've been watching San Martino, I mean, uh, Mascaris and Backlund since I was. They were big in this area, in the New York area, oh, New Jersey, yeah. Mill Mascaris was the guy, yeah. you know. And so I was, those were my boys. I couldn't care less. It was like now I got my new bro. My, my well, new and the bro. thing for me is like you know you know me I'm a huge music fan, and I didn't know too many rock stars. I mean now friends with everybody in the business, whatever. At the time, I was an outsider looking in. When he showed up, when Snake showed up, I flipped out. I marked out. <laughs> I, had, I had the 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 magazine photographer take a picture, yep. and I said specifically mail me that shot, and I still have it. Really, the four by six of you, me, and Elwood. Um, really, yes. Dude, you got glasses on? If you can't, yes. I, I'll find it. Please. I'll find it. And even better was I got his number, and you should have seen me after the tour. Like, like scared to call the hottest chick in school. <laughs> I finally Which called. Which I was. Yeah, I was the hottest was. chick in school. <laughs> I finally called and got up enough nerve to leave a message, and then you never called me back. Well, of course. <laughs> because the hottest chick would never call you that's back. That's right. Then. That's right. Because well, uh, I would have DDP blowing me up all the time, because DDP's... <laughs> Another guy from Jersey, right. yeah. 
in Diamond Dallas Page. Yeah. And ironically, how I met Chris was through DDP. There you go. And also, too, though, you were a big wrestling fan, too. Massive. And yeah. you, when I found that he came to see us play, uh, not specifically us, but Testament, we were supporting Testament. But I was told to get there early to see you guys by my friend Jeff. And my buddy said, Chris Jericho was here. I was like, what? We were huge Chris Jericho because we yeah. were tape traders. Yeah. Because all we would do was get fans to bring us out tapes so we could watch all the shows. We were the same way. Or Elwood and I were the same every way. Every WCW show, every ECW show, every WWF, we had all. So that's all we used to do. And, and when Chris saw us, tell him, like, so yeah, I went. To the, I think it was called the Electric Ballroom in Orlando. I was living there with WCW, uh, and Testament's coming. I have no friends. I don't know any chicks. Right. I'll go out and do something. And then my friend Jeff told me, make sure you go see Stuck Mojo. Right. So I get there early. I see these guys, and I remember you for sure with your hair. And they had all the wrestling dolls up on the amps. And that. And, see, and that's I was tight, like, dude. I was like, okay. And then they said a couple things like, "To be the band, you got to beat the band." Dude. That's yeah. awesome. So I was like, well, these guys know wrestling. But at the time, I was like nobody in WCW. Like I, I like, like you said, I'm the, earlier. You know, I'm just a dude doing what I love to do. Right. But no one knows me. And I was gonna go see if I could tell the security guard, hey, tell the guys in Stuck Mojo that Chris Jericho's there. But I thought, like, they probably won't know. Him. I'm gonna feel like a real idiot, so I'm not gonna bother. So I never went to say hi. Right. Even though you guys were fans of mine or knew who I was at least. Right. Yeah. Right. He, he and Eddie awesome. and Benoit were our favorites. Right. Like, like <laughs> well, that, yeah. Yeah. And that, that period of time was like, because we liked the guys who worked super hard and that, like, could do high flyer oh, stuff. Oh, like Malenko but, is a part of that, yeah. too. Yes, you're yeah. exactly right. Exactly. Stinko Malenko. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny, man. But, yeah, so that, that, that's because you always talk about wrestling. I mean, you still watch to this day. To this day. And I still watch all the old stuff, too. Like, Elwood and I... The reason why we were such Mill Maskers fans because we were into the IWA. Mm-hmm. And the IWA in New Jersey was pretty big for a little while. They went up against you know WWWF mm-hmm. late night Saturday nights. Right. And they would do shows at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City. So I saw guys like uh, the Mongols, which I think Nikolai Volkov was he a was part one of, of them, yeah. uh, and Beepo. And, uh, <laughs> I, I think his. Bubba Ray was actually a Mongol for a while, was too. Was he really? Yeah. You know who was? was uh, what's his name from Demolition? Oh, uh, Edie, Billy. Edie? Yeah, Billy. Yeah, he was a Mongol too. And, a lot of uh, Mongols. Yeah, and uh, so it was Bulldog Brower. I saw there. Mill Mascaris, Mighty Igor, mm-hmm. Tex McKenzie, uh, <laughs> Pistol Pez Watley. These names have not been uttered <laughs> ever. Like, These guys are all going to send you fan mail. Yeah, right. Please, Thank keep you. Dro- keep you, name dropping. Yeah, you just gave him an extra fifty bucks into yep. the convention circuit. Yeah. Well, the best was Bulldog Brower. Like used to kind of scare me because uh-huh. he would. I mean, he was, like, in the whole, like, he had the razor teeth like Freddie Blassie, you know. <laughs> they put the big sensor mark across the screen. But getting back on point, sorry. So I was, I w- had grown up with those guys, Elwood and I. We were, we would, got into tape trading mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And then it became all, like, the barbed wire matches on the island from From, from Puerto Rico. and oh, Yeah, for the, 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 a lot of them in Japan. Right. FW and Big Japan. Yeah, right, right, right. IWA Japan, yeah. Right, and right. the exploding barbed wire matches. Oh, yeah. Or the ones yeah. that I always thought was the funniest. That was the guy a, would land on the board of the barbed wire. It would be a massive explosion. Yeah, Somebody yelps. and. <laughs> well, it's funny because somehow Cactus Jack and Terry Funk were involved in them. Yeah, tonight, always, you know? always. It was great, you know. Yeah. Cactus, another New York guy. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, it's everyone's seen those matches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, in the '90s, that was the thing. It like was. when I was in Japan, when I saw you in '95, there was 28 wrestling companies, 
And Japan is the size of, I don't even think it's as big as California. No, it can't be. It's not even, it maybe no way. as big as, as, as Washington or maybe even New York or the yeah. state of New York. But there was 28 companies. There were so many companies and so many guys working there. It was in a, a boom period. And that's how, like, when I was working with War, I could go over there 12 times a year for two weeks. Two weeks yeah. home, two weeks there. Every, we every used year. to go over there and we hung out with, I mean... Every time we were over there, we were lucky enough to, to run into, like, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dean actually went and saw you guys once. Did you do the Tokyo Dome? Yes. With Jovi? By, by Jovi. He saw that show. Yeah. Dean Malenko was there. It was amazing. It was New Year's Eve, 90, yeah. New Year's Eve in 91, I believe. Wow. Uh, or 90, excuse me. New gotcha. Year's Eve 90. And uh, we would run into him, and, and that's where I became friends with uh, with the uh, Road Warriors, with Mark and, and Jim and... and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, uh, Joe. Joe, yeah, Joe, Joe. I'm sorry, Joe Laurinaitis. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and also Pillman, who was a great guy, and uh, Joe's brother, Marcus, yeah. which is where he and I are still very close. And Joe's other brother is, of course, Johnny Laurinaitis. Johnny Laurinaitis, yes, right? Big Johnny. Johnny Ace. Johnny Ace. That's right. So we, uh, it was always fun for me because we get to hang out with those guys and and become friends. The nasty boys, of course, mm-hmm. sags and knobs. And, and everybody was always so kind. There's always that was the one thing that I loved about, like when I saw you wrestle and you're like again with the lyrics. I'm going, holy crap, man! Like this is crazy, <laughs> and it's to me. I'm thinking to myself, like that's like the equivalent of me going on stage and, and like putting my singer in a code breaker. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was really cool. It was a very cool and first all meeting. this time later. You know, I know. Here we years are. Later. And, and- we got a we got we got a show to play pretty soon. I just got to ask a couple last questions. Uh, which we've never. What's your favorite match of all time that you ever saw, Rich? Is uh, there one that stands out? I mean, there's a lot of matches that I love, but if if, if gun to the head. There was this era of ECW, like your match with Sabu, Ooh. and like mm-hmm. uh, some of the early Dudley stuff. I like seeing some of the guys like. Just because I got to know people, right. it's really nice to see them when they're kids. You know what I mean? You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I guess it's the same way that when I, you see a picture of Zach playing Pride and Glory. Yeah. Like, like, is he better now? Probably. But there's something magic about seeing people the early that years, now know. Yeah. Like, when I see matches of you at early WCW and ECW, I love those because I know you, and I know that you probably technically are better, And you're, but it's something magic about that moment. Really, you know what I mean? It's that yeah. era. Like, for me, that's my golden era of... Well, you guys were carrying that uh, company at that point. I thought all the cruiser rates at that point were carrying a company. I'll say that. I mean, the NWO got the steam, but it was the quote-unquote cruiser weights that made people come back again because the NWO matches were usually stinkers. Yeah. Well, yeah, without yeah. without pulling out your, your wand and, and shaking it, like, you carried pretty much, in my mind... You carried pretty much every company you were at, and that's for being a fanboy. <laughs> I know, I know. Stop. But Tell me more. I Tell know. Me more. <laughs> exactly. But I was a fan because well, it's just like you talk about. We talk about rock and roll. It's like we, when Ace Frehley speaks to you as a guitar player, mm-hmm. and Eddie Van Halen speaks to me. We all ha- we all connect. It's the same way you say. Like when you were watching Chris, you're a fan. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same way that fans absorb us. From yeah, from, yeah, the, from yeah, out yeah, there, yeah, yeah. it's like they'll see you as a guitar player differently than they'll see me. And the same way that when I watch Terry Funk wrestle, some people are attracted to him, whereas right, I'm like Chris and Ty. But okay, so gun to your head, what's your favorite match? Uh, WrestleMania 19, probably. Oh wow, yeah, Jericho Michaels. Yeah, oh okay, great, yeah. good choice. What about yours? 
Um, that's one of them, but probably I'd say 2008. Uh, my favorite match that I've had. That no, I've no, seen. Of, of anybody. Oh, not sh- Michaels versus Undertaker, part one. Dude. The, the greatest pro wrestling match I've ever seen of all time that will never be beat. You talk about five stars, this was freaking ten stars. It was amazing. The most amazing, 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 amazing match I've ever seen in my life. I have a couple. What's yours? Right up there for me, and, it, it was, and you're going to think of whatever for saying this. Uh, Greg Valentine, Rowdy Piper, uh, dog, dog collar match. match. Okay. Now. Why is that? Okay. It had never been done before like mm-hmm. that. Uh, Piper got busted up hard way too on his yeah, end, yeah, right? Yeah. Also, if you watch that match, the lighting, huh. the lighting of the arena on television makes you feel like you're in an old. Because I used to go to the Garden as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, every once a month on Monday nights, Sam Martino, because he was champ for forever. Right. Would, would defend a title once a month at Madison Square Garden. Garden. 237 main Some events. Sold outs. 237 sold out main events. Bruno San Martino. No never be will, done again. Never, never, never. Um, and so that match, the lighting in that, the way they lit the, the ring. Sorry about that. That's right. Um, and the way it's just, there's something about it. Like, it's like, holy crap. Like, Adds this to is the ambiance. For real. Yeah. Yes. And now, I think the reason why I have to say that is because when I was 15 years old, I was at the Olympic Auditorium in L.A. I saw Piper fight Chavo Guerrero in a Texas death match. Now, if you've ever been to the Olympic Auditorium, it's not a lot of Anglo-Saxon people in that audience. <laughs> not a lot of Caucasians, if you will. <laughs> it's very much the uh, the Latin American Sure, of course. Right. So Chavo is over like no one's Chavo's dad, yeah. Right. Right, exactly. Chavo Sr., yeah. Right. Classic. Chavo Classic. And Piper maybe is in his 21, 20, I mean, early, early Super days. Super overheel. Yeah. Yeah. And he's pile driving Guerrero on the cement steps of the Olympic Auditorium. So, and this is back in the day with Raul Mata, uh, Pampiro Furpo. He knows his stuff. Freddie Blassie <laughs> back then. You these know? are tapes that you watch, you weren't there. No, no. I learned about these from magazines. Gotcha. But I was at the Olympic for Piper and Chavo Sr. Oh, what year was that? It was 80, 80, 79. Were you there on vacation or something? My brother lived out there. Ah, so I drove cross country with him because he was wow, a tractor trailer driver. okay. Yep. So that was one. I was at WrestleMania six, Hogan and Ultimate Warrior. In Toronto. Yeah. I flew in after our last night with Aerosmith. I flew in, met Diamond Dallas Page there. Page snuck us in. <laughs> so I was partying the night before with Pat Tanaka. Remember Pat? Yeah. I'm sure you bought all his drinks. Oh, D-Boy, of course. Brother, let me buy a drink. I left yeah. my wallet in the car. Can yeah, you catch yeah. this round? Yep, exactly. Oh, I don't have any Canadian money. So, <laughs> so and Sherry, you know, yeah. of course. And, and well, didn't all Page the- drive them to the ring? Yeah. Page drove, Page drove Honky Tonk Man. Man and Greg the Hammer to the ring in a limousine in a pink Cadillac. It was pink Cadillac. It was Page his. Page was the driver. That was his that car. That was his pink Cadillac? Yeah. He always of course figured, it was. He always figured out a way. But here's the funny part is that a couple nights ago, my chick and I are hanging out and getting a buzz on. And we're talking, I, we're talking about wrestling or something like that. And I told her, I was like, you know, I was at WrestleMania 6. And I go, and, and I said, my buddies bought the VHS tape after it came out or whatever. And uh, you could see me in it. Like you see, because I'm right along the railing at like eighth row with a 32 ounce bull of bats blue. And I got my leather jacket on. I literally, I've been up the whole night because we literally flew in the night before from the last night of the Aerosmith tour, mm-hmm. my tour manager and I, and it was at the Sky Dome. Yeah. And uh, 
stayed up the whole time. So we go on WWE Network and pull it up. And sure enough, man, Jake the Snake Roberts matches. I think it's him coming down. Forget it, someone, it doesn't matter. You see me and my tour manager right there. And I'm like, hi! <laughs> with me with a giant beer in my head. So that's one of my other All right, favorites. I want somebody to find it and take a screenshot of it oh, and, I, and post I'll it. I'll do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. last, la- one, sure, last, sure. one last match, though, was uh, Bruno San Martino, Stan Hansen at the, the garden, garden when San Martino got his neck broken. Wow. Yeah. Would it stand drop him on his head? No, his he lariated him, but San Martino already had a, a problem with his neck, and he lariated him. I think he caught him underneath the chin and just kind of popped him back. But yeah, he, I broke think his he, neck. Yeah, broke his neck. See, dude, you know your stuff, man. Just to finish up, what's what's uh, your favorite Skid Row tune? I mean, it's hard to pick just one. Um, today, yes, today at this moment, probably Monkey Business or or Quicksand Jesus. Quicksand Jesus. Oh, yeah. I'm scared. That's There's funny. a track off the new record called We Are the Damn that we've been playing it and I love playing it. It's fu- it's really a lot of fun and to people play. Are, people are into it. It seems that they are. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course I'm gonna Yeah, of course. You kidding <laughs> me? They think it's the greatest thing we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that, but right now at this moment, because they're very both of those songs are uh Quicksand and Monkey Business are really significant. And we are the damned. Yeah. It's from I wanted to ask you, now you grew up in the Atlanta area, yeah. right? Okay. So you grew up with Gordon Soley. Of course. Oh, my God. I'm so jealous, yeah, man. Yeah, I actually have I, – I used to go uh, – I've seen – we used to go to the Charlotte Coliseum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and saw the Road Warriors. Like, Yeah. And then, obviously, every Saturday morning, Gordon Soley. I didn't know there was any other wrestling. Mm-hmm. Right. I had no idea there was even WWF. The only thing we knew was Gordon Soley. That was it. Georgia Championship Georgia Wrestling. Championship wrestling. Yeah. That was it. See, because yeah. I was the guy who bought all the magazines, too. Like – Here's how much of a geek I am. Not only did I have a subscription to The Wrestler and Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but I also, because you could always get the back issues in the back. Yeah. So I have stuff from the ah, 70s. you got that. Oh, yeah. I have stuff from the, like, the early 70s and stuff when they first started out. And also I have a bunch of old programs. <laughs> and if you remember in the 60s, I have Ring Magazine. Used to be boxing and wrestling. <laughs> so I have one with Johnny Valentine on the cover. <laughs> nice. Old school. Johnny Valentine for like 68. I used to have a subscription to Wrestling Superstars. Yep. And Circus Magazine. And they would come usually on the same day. Circus for me too. Yeah. Oh, I had Circus. But I would get Cream because Cream was, was really strange in the sense that it was very much in New York. They always focused a lot mm-hmm. on the New York punk A lot of clubs. Kiss. And- a lot of Kiss, a lot of CBGB mm-hmm. stuff. Max's Kansas City. They do Blondie, New York Dolls, all that sort of that New York underground scene, mm-hmm. and I was like, "That's like right up the street, you know? <laughs> I do that's that. forty-five minutes away, man." <laughs> and so that was very appealing to sure, me sure. too. Is there a better announce uh, play-by-play guy than Gordon Soley? In my view, no, because he used the word souple. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that he he knew so much about anatomy. You know, he was always like. Applying pressure to that lower medulla lumbar oblong. region. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. so, it's yeah. a chop to the solar plexus. The medulla <laughs> yeah. oblongata is going <laughs> to uh, The crimson mask. <laughs> but yeah. Jim Ross, I mean. Yeah, Jim's oh, a classic. And actually, too, for me, I always loved Vince and Jesse Ventura. They were great. With Gorilla Monsoon as the third. I thought they were an amazing team. But like we said earlier, it's, it's the glory years, you know. Uh, is there ever any reason for you to do a reunion with Sebastian at this point? No. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful at all, because it's certainly not. I, I'm... I'm proud of every 
day of every month or every year right. that this band has existed. Um, and I'm proud of, of what we created during that time. But I'm really happy right now. And so it's pretty obvious. My happiness isn't based on the size of the crowd or the size of the paycheck. My right. happiness is based on the amount of integrity that I maintain and the fact that the joy and love I have for playing this music that we that we that we've made and that we continue to make. And I, I get to go on stage, there's no tension, there's no just a play good music. Time. Yeah, that's man. why you do it. And playing get, to, to crowds that love you. I mean you guys have played a lot of shows all around the world. We've you been got lucky. a big worldwide name. Yeah, man. we've been lucky. I mean we played this we played festivals and shows this past year that we've never done in the twenty five years of the band. We played it's going to sound funny because it is the Polish Woodstock Festival, right? Oh my gosh, we've been flirting with that for years and never got booked. But we've we talked this right. You and I talked about it's like this. a million people or something, it's right? Half a million, half people. a million people, and we co-headlined it with Volbeat, and which I've never and Hatebreed went on before us. I'm like, this is crazy, whatever. <laughs> and um, the enormity of it, it's like it makes the Enormo Dome look like. The Stone Pony. <laughs> because it's just, it's people that go so far beyond. And there's three relay towers for the sound. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's the biggest show you've ever played. Like, in Mr. Perfect couldn't throw a football that far. <laughs> <laughs> the new record, Rise of the Damnation Army, United World Rebellion, Chapter 2, Snake. You're the best, man. You're the best. Thank Thanks, you. Both of you guys. Thanks, Thank Rich. You. Mad respect for Rich, too, man. Absolutely. Mad respect. Thanks for having me involved. Not because you're a guitar player, because you got to hang out with Gordon Soli in, in one way or another. And he's got a nice ass. You have a hot ass, dude. That goes without saying. <laughs> At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks to Snake and Rich. Great conversation with those guys. Snake is such a funny guy and uh, very, very cool. Dear, dear friend and very cool to have him on the show. And, of course, Rich, my brother, my partner in crime. They just tore it up with a reunited uh, Stuck Mojo in Atlanta. If you were there, hopefully you wore a helmet. I think Stuck Mojo might be doing some more select shows. Very, very cool. Rich is a, a great guy and deserves all the success he gets. Plus, so do we, because we're in Fozzie together. Lots of success coming in 2015. And, of course, thanks to Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff for coming on the show and giving us just a taste of what you're going to hear January 25th in Philadelphia at Dave & Buster's on Columbus Avenue. They're holding an open forum debate about the Monday Night Wars. It's the first time ever. You know it's going to be great, and I wasn't kidding about showing up to moderate this. So make sure you go to rfvideo.com for all ticket and VIP information. Eric and Bruce will be doing a VIP before the show. I will not. I will just be there to moderate it. But you don't want to miss this. Thank you if you've got a ticket for it already. And you're going to thank me uh, once this show is done. It's a, it's a can't miss, don't miss opportunity. Um, and also a can't miss, don't miss opportunity to do all your online shopping. Great segue through my Amazon links. You know, I appreciate it. It's the easiest way to support this show. So I keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. I want you to go to my Amazon links. You know how to do it. Come on. Podcast one.com. Click on the keep our podcast free banner at the top of the page. 
then click on Talk is Jericho. You see all three of my Amazon links in the UK, USA, Canada, A. Every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show. We keep doing this for blah, 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 blah. You know the deal. No extra fees, hidden charges. Go buy all your stuff. Go buy all your shiznit. Uh, through my Amazon links on podcastone.com. All right. I thank you for listening today. Thanks to Snake. Thanks to Rich. Thanks to Eric. Thanks to Bruce. And thanks to all of you. That's it. Another fine edition of Talk is Jericho. In the meantime and in between times, stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. And on Friday, my old buddy, John Bradshaw Layfield, will be here. JBL in the house on Friday. You're not going to want to miss this. The guy can talk. We'll see you then, and a big yeah, boy. Happy New Year! My goodness, people! My goodness! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.